0: This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehelys Wohib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight.
1: The complete lack of action by Eritrean authorities over the last two decades to address the country's troubling human rights situation is a matter of governmental policy.
0: That's UN Special Rapporteur on Eritrea, Mohammed Abdul Salam Babakir, on how there have been no signs of improvement on Eritrea's human rights issues. Details coming up also. Government troops are entering homes in Chad's capital in Jamina in search of weapons. And the International Rescue Committee says delivering critical humanitarian supplies to Sudan through the Red Sea has become too dangerous. These stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Hundreds of government troops are entering homes in Chad's capital, Injamina, in search of weapons they say suspected the rebels and opposition party leaders have hidden. There are also unconfirmed reports that opposition politician Yaya Dilo died in a clash with security forces yesterday. Mokedwin Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé, Cameroon.
2: The President of the Republic, Chef de l'État, Chef supreme des armées, a présidé mercredi 28 février une réunion de
3: sécurité sur la situation du. Chad State TV reports Uh that transitional President Mohamed Idris Debi ordered the military to search for weapons allegedly held by members of the opposition. Chad's military on Thursday said troops are searching for armed men whom they said carried out attacks on government institutions and state officials on Wednesday. In addition, international news media on Thursday are quoting prosecutor Umar Muhammad Kedelei as saying that Yaya Dilu, president of the Opposition Socialist Party Without Borders, was killed in a gun battle with security forces on Wednesday. A government statement says DILU led an attack overnight Tuesday on the facilities of the National Agency for State Security in the capital N'Djamena and that several party members were arrested. VOA cannot independently verify reports that DILU was killed or the details about the alleged clashes. On Thursday, the military said Several hundred civilians and armed men had been arrested, but it did not provide any details. Lawmaker Ali Kulutu Chaimi spoke on state TV about the attacks. Nous, président de groupe parlementaire, condamnons avec force cette tentative de déstabilisation. He says Church parliament strongly condemns attacks on state institutions and officials, which he says were funded and carried out by people with a hidden agenda and obscure intentions. Chami says "Deby should be allowed to conclude his mandate as transitional president and hand power peacefully to constitutional order atteintes aux de la République. Chami said Parliament wants government forces to arrest those who organized the attacks, assure the safety of civilians and government officials, and protect Chad's territorial integrity. Opposition parties and civil society groups say the clashes provoked panic. Many people fled in Jemena. Takiland is president of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Chad. He spoke to VOA by telephone from Jamena. He says after Wednesday's attacks, several hundred frightened civilians also fled to neighboring Cameroon following rumors that there was an attempt by disgruntled government troops to overthrow Chad's transitional president, Deby. He says many people suspect that mutineers received orders from disgruntled opposition leaders. Neither Chad officials nor the opposition politicians have said if the gun battles reported Tuesday and Wednesday were a coup attempt, on Thursday, Chad's Minister of Public Security and Immigration Mohammed Chafadin Margui said he visited Cameroon communities near the border to encourage those who had fled to return. He said crisis meetings were held with Cameroon officials to deal with any people who may have taken part in Wednesday's attacks and are hiding in Cameroon. Cameroon confirms that militaries of the two countries held meetings on Wednesday and Thursday. David became leader of the Transitional Military Council in April 2021 after his father, Idris Debbie Itno, died. The elder Debbie had led the country for three decades. The younger Debbie promised to head an 18-month transitional council, but in October of 2022, he dissolved the council and declared himself interim president. The government has said a presidential election will be held on May 6 to end the transitional period. The former ruling party, the Patriotic Salvation Movement, says Debbie will be its candidate. The opposition, however, says there is growing public unhappiness over the idea that Debbie would be a candidate. Moki Edwin Kinzuka, VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon.
0: Ghana's parliament yesterday passed a bill criminalizing same-sex relations that would impose a prison sentence of up to three years for anyone convicted of identifying as LGBTQ+. It also imposes a maximum five-year jail term for forming or funding LGBTQ groups. Human rights groups, United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights Volker Turk, and the United States government have condemned the legislation. My colleague, James Butty, spoke with the lead sponsor of the legislation, Sam George, a member of the opposition National Democratic Congress Party, and a lead sponsor of the bill. George said the bill promotes Ghanaian family values and human rights.
4: Ghanaian family values are spelled out in our Constitution. Article 35, 36, 37, 38, 39 of the Ghanaian 1990 Constitution spell out what our family values are. The National House of Chiefs is the custodian of our customary values, and so those are all spelled out. So for Ghanaians, we know what our customary values are. The values of respect for your elders, the value of what a family is, the father, the mother, and their children. These are family values that we are brought up with and trained in. We've got our values properly indoctrinated into us as kids, and we're going to pass those on to our children as well.
3: So, uh, Honorable, um, do you think uh, that President Nana Akufado might sign this bill?
4: It holds power and trust for the Ghanaian people. As parliamentarians, we represent the Ghanaian people. The Ghanaian people, unanimously in parliament, through their representatives, passed a law. The president only holds power in trust for us. His own whole responsibility is to sign it into law. If he fails to do that, the Constitution will give us the power to bring it back to parliament and two-thirds of members of parliament will pass it into law without a president.
0: That was Sam George, a lead sponsor of the Ghana anti-LGBTQ plus bill. He spoke with VOS James Butty from the Ghanaian capital, Accra. A Ghana human rights coalition known as the Big 18 and an umbrella group of lawyers and activists has criticized the bill, saying it criminalizes a person's identity. Members of Ghana's LGBTQ community told the French news agency AFP they are worried about the bill's passage, saying it could create an environment of persecution. Around 30 African countries ban homosexuality, according to the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans, and Intersex Association, the ILGA. A few countries allow the death penalty, under some circumstances, for same-sex relations. South Africa is the only nation on the continent to allow gay marriage. The ILGA says same-sex relations have been decriminalized in only a handful of countries like Cape Verde, Gabon, Guinea-Bissau, Lesotho, Mozambique, and the Seashells. Human rights experts warn that Eritrea, maintains an iron grip on its people through repression and widespread systematic impunity for grave human rights violations. The experts reported on the situation to the United Nations Human Rights Council yesterday. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva.
5: The experts report the state of human rights in Eritrea continues to be dire, with no signs of improvement. The U.N. Human Rights Office says it continues to receive credible reports of rampant human rights abuses and violations, including torture, arbitrary detention, and enforced disappearances. U.N. Special Rapporteur on Eritrea, Mohammed Abdel Salam Babakir, says there's no evidence the government has taken any steps to prevent, invest, to or redress the violations documented by a variety of monitoring groups.
1: The complete lack of action by Eritrean authorities over the last two decades to address the country's troubling human rights situation is a matter of a governmental policy. The prevailing impunity has ended, enabled the recurrence of human rights violations, and silenced the victims. The identified practices and patterns of gross violations continue unabated.
5: Babaker says Eritreans have been stripped of their civil rights. He notes no elections have been held in over 30 years. Political groups are not allowed to organize outside the ruling party, and independent media and civil society are not allowed to operate. Additionally, he says no action has been taken to reform Eritrea's compulsory national service. Because of the country's indefinite military service, he says Eritreans continue to suffer gross and horrific abuse, including forced labor and sexual violence.
1: I routinely receive information regarding individuals who have been conscripted for the past 20 years, who have been deprived of their civic and social and economic rights, including the right to work, the right to life, family life, freedom of movement, and the right to education. Further severe and collective punishments are inflicted on draft evaders, their families,
5: and their communities. Babaker says he continues to receive reports about mass roundups and conscription campaigns. He says the Eritrean Defense Forces, or EDF, still operate in Ethiopia's Tigray region, despite an agreement with Ethiopia to withdraw. And, he adds, he continues to receive allegations of EDF involvement in human rights violations in Ethiopia. Charge d'affaires of the permanent mission of Eritrea in Geneva, Habtom Zarai Germai, accused the rapporteur of unfounded allegations. He said Eritrea has been a victim of this politicized and selective mandate for the last twelve years. Rather than being a violator of human rights, Germay said the promotion and protection of human rights lies at the heart of his country's nationhood. Lisa Schlein for VOA news geneva
0: you're listening to African news tonight on the voice of america and for more information on these and other stories from the continent please see voa there you'll find all your favorite voa radio and tv programs and a whole lot more Russian influence has been gaining ground across Africa, placing the continent at the crux of the geopolitical rivalry between Moscow and Washington. Moscow pursues a combination of military, diplomatic, and economic interests in Africa. Military Russia mostly focuses on weapons traded by, but is also seeking to expand its operational footprint, including by signing agreements for new military bases. David DeRoche, Associate Professor at the U.S. National Defense University, discussed Russian involvement in Africa with VOA Senior Analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi.
6: Well, what we're seeing is really there's two drivers of Russian expansion in Africa. The first seems to be financial. It seems as though there usually is almost a barter system, mercenaries for raw materials. So in the Central African Republic, it's been control of mines. We've seen uh, the possibility, although it hasn't been proven yet, of some involvement in the gold trade in Sudan, possibility of oil in Libya. The second motive seems to be to establish a stronger geopolitical position. And here, the Russian focus seems to be to push out the West where they can. So in Mali, Burkina Faso, countries that don't have a whole lot in the way of natural resources, it looks as though you found the Russians managing to align with a new government or maybe even form a new government, get uh, the UN mission, the French-led mission dismissed from Mali, and then they go in and take over primarily, I think, to sort of establish themselves as a regional power, although whether this will pay for itself uh, remains to be seen. I think it's
0: unlikely it will. So would Russia manage to establish a naval base in Libya?
6: Uh, That's a good question. I honestly don't know. I think that uh, it probably would be able to have frequent rights to land there, but I don't think they would have the ability to have a fully functioning naval base the way they have it in Latakia. And given the fact that all of their warships can't transit the uh, Bosporus right now, so I think that it would just be a little bit of a reach for them. You know, they're, they're, their ships have to go from St. Petersburg or from the Arctic all the way into that. I think that just the burden of having two bases, when they really only have enough ship traffic to justify the one, and the added expense and security considerations, I think
0: might be a little bit too much for the Russians. Official relations between the Kremlin and African counterparts are modest but growing. In addition to seeking military bases, Moscow has inked military cooperation agreements with at least 19 African countries since 2014. How serious is this military cooperation between Russia and African countries?
6: It's serious, but it's not determinative. So usually, what the Russians will do is offer to send a few people from these African countries to various schools. There will be some weapons sales, but you know, right now Russia is not in a position to export weapons. They need everything for the war in Ukraine, and uh, these countries generally are rather poor. They don't have. A, they're not a lucrative market. I mean, the the people that pay for Russian weapons are Algeria and India with their natural gas. So that's a real issue. The bigger concern is uh, what we've seen in Mali, for example, where it appears that part of the agreement is we'll go in and solve this insurgency for you. And the way they do it is basically by massacring the civilian population in the area where there's insurgents. I think that this has the potential to create a lot more instability in Africa and ultimately will work against uh, not just African interests, but also against Russian interests.
0: How different would be the role of the newly established Africa Legion from that of the Wagner Group and Russian involvement in Africa?
6: I don't think it'll be that different from the outside. I think that they'll continue to do the same things. Uh, You know, Wagner Group was noticeable for, uh, again, it's financial focused. Everything seemed to be done on a sort of barter basis, or the anticipation of payment, either from direct payment or control of natural resources, you know, mines in the Central African Republic. The big difference here is, and people forget this, for years the Russian state insisted vehemently and called people names if they suggested that there was any connection between the Wagner Group and the Russian state. Well, obviously that facade has been Abandoned, and the African Legion will have a direct, undeniable, baked in from birth connection with the Russian state.
0: That was David DeRoche, associate professor at the U.S. National Defense University, speaking with VOA's Mohamed El Shenawi. <music> The International Rescue Committee says delivering critical humanitarian supplies to Sudan through the Red Sea has become too dangerous due to attacks by Houthi rebels based in Yemen. Instead of, the agency says it will use alternative but more expensive routes to deliver humanitarian supplies needed by millions of Sudanese. Mohammed Yusuf has the story from Nairobi.
2: Getting humanitarian supplies to millions of Sudanese affected by the country's more than 10 months of conflict is getting expensive and risky due to the Yemen's rebel group's violent activities in the Red Sea. The International Rescue Committee says its logistic partner will now bypass the Red Sea route and deliver supplies through Jebel Ali Port in the United Arab Emirates on the eastern side of the Arabian Peninsula. It says the new route will raise transportation costs by more than 40%. Sally Anyanga works with the International Rescue Committee. She says the new route will also increase the shipping time for supplies from approximately two weeks to more than a month. Yeah, uh, so the alternative routes involve longer transportation distances, yeah, leading to increased transit times and uh, causing delays in delivering critical aid to those in need. Making our operation very challenging and also expensive at the same time. Uh, We're not able to get uh, pharmaceuticals on time that are used by our health team. According to aid agencies, more than 25 million people in Sudan are in need of humanitarian support in the wake of the war between Sudan's armed forces and paramilitary rapid support forces that broke out in April 2023. Due to insecurity, most aid agencies have moved their operations to Port Sudan, where they are able to receive and supply aid to the needy. Anyanga says it is critical that humanitarian aid be allowed to enter Sudan through all available routes. But ultimately, what the people need, what the people of Sudan need most, is uh, peace, a uh, lasting peace. Because uh, for the last several months, uh, we've seen that uh, civilians have been a target. More than thirteen thousand have been killed. We've also seen aid workers being a target and and so we need to to make an end to all this and to ensure that uh, aid reaches uh, uh, the people in need on time. Humanitarian agencies, experts and some government officials in Eastern Africa have expressed concerns about Houthi attacks on ships, saying the attacks affect the security and economic situation of the countries that rely on that route to receive goods. U.S. and the British forces have targeted Houthi positions to deter attacks, but the group continues to launch rockets and raids on ships, hampering the free flow of goods and services. Edgar Githua, a lecturer at the United States International University, Africa, who specialises in international relations, peace and conflict, told via a global effort is needed to stop Houthi attacks before they make the situation worse for many countries.
1: The international community needs to, to deal with their, their Houthi rebels
3: who have now turned to blatant piracy in the name of supporting the Israel-Palestinian conflict. But now they are now hijacking ships and creating a logistical nightmare. So I think there needs to be a huge response on that because it will not only affect the humanitarian crisis, it will affect food prices,
2: it will affect so many things that are touched, that rely on the logistical support of that corridor. So that. So, the international community needs to just step up. Late Tuesday, the US military reported shooting down five Houthi drones in the Red Sea. The US Central Command said the drones had presented a threat to merchant and naval vessels in the region. Mohammed Youssef, VA News, Nairobi.
0: At least. At least 24 people seeking to reach Europe drowned off northern Senegal when their loaded vessel sank. The governor of the St. Louis region, Alioun Samb, says 24 bodies have been found since yesterday. The boat got into difficulty where the Senegal River meets the Atlantic Ocean, which is well known for its strong currents and areas of thick mud. Some but did not say how many people were missing from the vessel, which witnesses said could have been carrying more than 300 people. A number of survivors managed to reach shore and dispersed among local residents. Senegal's coast is an increasingly common departure point for Africans fleeing poverty and unemployment and heading to the Canary Islands, their port of entry, into Europe. And with that, we wrap up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Douglas Mpuga, and our engineer, Saida Hamdoun, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.